Hello and welcome back to Reason for Hope. I hope you're having a good day. I'm having a good day. And we have a great podcast for you today. And thanks for tuning in. If you're new to us, welcome. Please subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already done so. And give us a good rating because this really helps get the word out. We have been so blessed to have some of the most renowned Catholic presenters of our generation as part of our podcasts. And we're excited to share these with you. They're helpful, they're powerful, and they're going to help us with our faith walks. So let's get the word out. Also, join us on social media where we keep you engaged through music, videos, and daily reflections. And by the way, all the music that you're hearing on this podcast is original and created by the Array of Hope team. So subscribe to us on Spotify and all the other music platforms. So lately, some people have been sharing with me that they've been suffering. Some of these sufferings are depression, difficulty with their marriages, a drug addiction, alcoholism, pornography, and even same-sex attraction. My answer has been pretty consistent. We need to pray for grace, for God's grace. Grace is a gift, a gift that is unwarranted and undeserved, but God is generous in dispensing of it. But many don't understand what God's grace truly is. Grace enables the soul to perform supernatural acts. I don't know if you remember, but back in my day, when I was a kid, uh, there were these sneakers, they were called PF Flyers. And I absolutely wanted them. And there was this big advertising campaign, and they, I'm sure you guys remember this, if you're from the 60s or the 70s. They will make you run faster and jump higher. I mean, I so wanted these sneakers so bad for that extra boost. I would do anything to be able to run faster and jump higher because I love sports and I wanted this super ability. So the idea is to be able to do something beyond our own capabilities. That's what these sneakers promised, right? And this was brilliant. This was a brilliant ad campaign and I'm sure they sold a lot of sneakers. But as you know, it was all made up. It wasn't real. But God's grace works in a familiar way and it is real. It gives us that extra boost, but his is of a supernatural power to do something above and beyond our own capabilities. That extra push, that effort, that power, whatever you wanna call it, that's what God gives us. With this in mind, that's exactly what we need to overcome these difficulties of addiction, or the lack of faith, or even the lack of belief that we can overcome these problems or issues in life. The bottom line is that we all need God and His graces, and we need His power. Remember, with God, anything is possible. We have to believe this, just like how we have to allow grace to work within us. We have to believe that it will happen. Jesus gave us the sacraments from which God's grace pours from in abundance. Most people are forgotten or just don't believe the power of the sacraments and the graces that are given to us through them. Jesus gave us the sacraments. They don't fail. They won't fail. So let us go to mass and confession as frequently as possible to receive these graces. Also, those of us that are married, remember marriage is a sacrament. Let's ask God to give us the grace and the power of this sacrament to get through difficult times in our marriages and also to give these graces to our children. Let's open up our hearts and allow these graces to live within us and you will see that our lives will begin to change. So today we have an exciting show. The brilliant Dr. Janet Smith is with us, and she is an absolute powerhouse of Catholic intellect. So, here we go, and welcome to Reason for Hope. 
So here we are. We're back with David Heideck, our theologian here at Array of Hope. And uh, we're talking about St. John Paul's Theology of the Body. And today's topic is TOB123. First off, uh, what does the title refer to, Dave? I guess TOB means Theology of the Body, I guess, right? Yeah. Uh, but when you when I hear 123, I usually think like 123 go. As a musician, I always say that's the count off of something exciting to come. My, my favorite count off in music, I'm a huge Beatle fan, those of you that know me personally, and the greatest count off in music is, you know, I saw her standing there, one, two, three, four, right? <laughs> and boom, we're, we're into a whole world of excitement. So, you know, let's talk about that. What does that mean, you know, T-O-B, uh, one, two, three? Well, actually, uh, one, two, three is an audience number. The Theology of the Body is a collection of Wednesday audiences that John Paul delivered over so the course of five years. So it has nothing to do with what I just said. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Perfect. It's, okay. it's clever. Yeah, so um, in, the, uh, in the translation that came out in 2006 um, that was done by Dr. Michael Waldstein, uh, he numbered the audiences. So number 123 is particularly powerful. It's an audience that I've always seen as almost a summary of all that John Paul II is doing in the theology of the body and uh, could even be seen as somewhat of a punchline of the theology of the body. There are a number of scholars that see the theology of the body as an extended argument defending St. Paul VI's Humanae Vitae. I love Humanae Vitae. Uh, so explain to our listeners what Humanae Vitae is and the significance of it. I mean, it was very prolific. So in 1968, uh, now St. Paul VI uh, wrote an encyclical letter named Humanae Vitae of human life. And it was really an encyclical letter on, on married love. It, it got reduced to the church's teaching on artificial contraception. But... Sometimes when people focus on that solely, that it confirmed the church's constant teaching against contraception, they miss the bigger picture of Humanae Vitae, which is really this wonderful and beautiful document about married love, and particularly about how married love is a reflection of, of God's own love. Right. So uh, yeah, it's funny, people who are against Humanae Vitae, many of them have never read it actually. It's really quite a beautiful document. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's really much shorter than you would think. It's a very short writing. It's on the Vatican website, and it's an easy read, and it's really exciting to read. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. It really is beautiful. Unfortunately, there was a lot of pressure on the church to change her teaching. And that pressure came from the outside, from outside the church. I mean, it was the sexual revolution. The birth control pill was new and becoming widely distributed, and there were all kinds of concerns at the time about population. But there was also significant pressure coming from the inside, from within the church, especially by way of certain well-known theologians who are really pushing for the church to relax its teaching on marital chastity. Mm. But St. Paul VI showed tremendous fortitude, and emboldened by the Holy Spirit, he wrote Humanae Vitae, reaffirming the constant teaching of the church, which cannot be changed. But you could say uh, many people harden their hearts to the teaching. Mm. So there was quite a reaction. And um, there were press conferences by theologians and priests who, who immediately dissented from it. And so, like, it just wound up being this, this big deal. Such a big deal 
interestingly, that a certain Cardinal Wojtyla from Poland uh, in 1969 wrote a letter to Pope Paul VI uh, sharing with him his concerns about how so many were, let's say, misrepresenting the teaching of the encyclical. And it gave a whole list of suggestions to Pope Paul VI about what he should do. So just so our listeners know, Cardinal Wojtyla, who uh, soon to be Pope John Paul II. Uh, so how did he understand the encyclical's authority? Well, I, I think John Paul II clearly believed that the encyclical was um, was infallible teaching. And uh, while while not an ex cathedra statement of a pope like you had with the Immaculate Conception, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, or the dogma of the Assumption of Mary, um, believed that because... The encyclical letter of Paul VI was an act of the ordinary magisterium that was confirming the constant teaching of the church and the teaching of previous magisteriums um, with the authority of of the pope teaching as universal pastor of the church what the faithful were to believe um, about faith and morals, uh, that he believed that that was indeed uh, infallible teaching. And Interesting, you know, many people think that the Pope is only infallible when it comes down to ex cathedra statements, but Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church, a document of Vatican II, actually shows that the, the Pope can be infallible in certain instances in the ordinary magisterium, and Pope John Paul II believed that this was one of them. Wow. So, Dave, um, you know, I have some Protestant friends, and they'll, you know, they always question the Pope and his infallibility when he talks about you know, teachings of faith and morals and whatnot. So uh, here's a question for you. I mean, how is it infallible if I've never found reference to it in Scripture? Yeah, actually, that's a really interesting question. It depends on what you mean by it's not found in Scripture, I suppose. The theology of the body is itself a reflection on the Scriptures, on Christ's words about the beginning, on Christ's words about lust and in the heart, uh, Christ's words about the resurrection. And so it, it is an unpacking of the scriptures. And by unpacking those scriptures, John Paul II shows how the church's teaching on contraception naturally flows from what the scriptures reveal. And this is what he said. This is very interesting. This is in audience 119. He says, even if the moral norm formulated in this way in Humanae Vitae is not found literally in sacred scripture, meaning like scripture doesn't say thou shalt not contracept, so to speak. Nevertheless, from the fact that it is contained in the tradition and, as Pope Paul VI writes, has been often set forth by the magisterium to the faithful, it follows that this norm corresponds to revealed teaching as a whole as contained in the biblical sources. So right there, John Paul II is saying very, very directly that the teaching in Humanae Vitae and the church's constant teaching against contraception and and for openness to life is corresponding to revealed teaching as a whole as contained in the biblical sources. So there is a biblical root of this teaching, Mm -hmm. and that's what the theology of the body unpacks. So this is, uh, this is really great, Dave. So you say that the audience 123 brings together what St. John Paul is trying to communicate, and it's also the great defense for Humanae Vitae, right? So what are the key passages that you really want to talk about? Well, I'm going to share just a few of them, and uh, then I'll make some commentary on them. This is just so beautiful to me. As ministers of a sacrament that is constituted through consent and perfected by conjugal union, men and women 
are called to express the mysterious language of their bodies in all the truth that properly belongs to it, through gestures and reactions, through the whole reciprocally conditioned dynamism of tension and enjoyment, whose direct source is the body in its masculinity and femininity, the body in its action and interaction. Through all this, man, the person, speaks. Isn't that beautiful? Mm. And that sums up what's going on in conjugal love. Since we are our bodies, when we give our bodies totally, we give ourselves totally. And this is what the sexual communion of spouses is supposed to speak. This is what the language of the body, you could say, is supposed to communicate. It is a total mutual self-giving and a total mutual receiving in giving. Mm-hmm. A giving and a receiving that is joyful and free and brings with it an intense and shared pleasure. So, in short, the whole dynamism of conjugal love is supposed to speak the language of total gift and, and be a mutual affirmation of the fundamental goodness of one another. Mm-hmm. To me, this section from St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body is, is like poetry, really. Well, this is what he goes on to say. Given that this union is a communion of persons, the language of the body must be judged according to the criterion of truth. This is exactly the criterion Humanae Vitae recalls. Mm. In a previous podcast, you know, we said that love is giving the sincere gift of self to another for that other person's good. Well, if that's what love is, we need to know what is truly good in order to love truly. Yeah. Also, a true communion of persons can only be formed when two people love one another truly, when they are giving the sincere gift of themselves for one another. So whether a communion of persons is true must be gauged by whether or not they are giving themselves mutually for what is truly good. Humanae Vitae is making clear the good that the spouses must choose if they're going to authentically love one another and form a real communion with one another. So here's the big punchline. According to this criterion of truth, which must be expressed in the language of the body, the conjugal act means not only love, but also potential fruitfulness. And thus, it cannot be deprived of its full and adequate meaning by means of artificial interventions. In the conjugal act, it is not licit to separate artificially the unitive meaning from the procreative meaning, because the one as well as the other belong to the innermost truth of the conjugal act. The one is realized together with the other, and in a certain way, the one through the other. This is what the encyclical teaches. Thus, in such a case, When the conjugal act is deprived of its inner truth because it is deprived artificially of its procreative capacity, it also ceases to be an act of love. Awesome. So that's profound, you know, like, and he's he's tying in a lot of the things that we've been talking about. But here's the thing that I want to just comment on there, particularly this line that I'm struck by, the one is realized together with the other and in a certain way, the one through the other. It's the total giving of the spouses to one another in and through their bodies that opens up to the gift of life. The procreative meaning is realized through Mm. the unitive meaning, you see? So in a sense, the child is the crown of the gift of self. And almost to like frustrate that 
is doing a violence to the very love itself. It's it, instead of, of that total giving of the self to the other, opening up to a bigger and greater love, it seeks somehow to turn it back in on myself. It, and John Paul II says this, if you remove the procreative aspect through an artificial intervention like contraception, and that could also mean withdrawal, by the way. It's not just like the use of a condom or the birth control pill. That act becomes two partners in an erotic experience, but it's not a communion of persons. It's almost like two people selfishly using one another for physical pleasure, but it can't be considered a true act of love, which must be the total gifting of oneself. Because contraception... It robs you of it. Yeah, it robs you of it. It, it, it right stops on. it from being a total yeah. gift. This is great, Dave. Uh, once again, uh, I learn a lot always talking to you. And I wasn't too far from the intro because one, two, three, four, it's leading into something that's really exciting. One, two, three, four! <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dave. Okay, so I'm going to call a friend I haven't spoken to in a while, Patrick Novakoski. Uh, he is an author, a Catholic speaker, uh, and currently just took on a new job at the Warrington Pregnancy Crisis Center. So I'm excited to uh, talk to him and see how he's doing. What are we up to? Four riggy dingies? Well, hello, Mario. Hey, Patrick, how you doing? Doing well, doing well. Moved to Virginia about three, two, three months ago I, and enjoying it here. Yeah, I know, I know. I know you got a new job and everything, right? Yeah, yeah. So I've been very, very blessed. God bless you. That's great. Um, I don't know uh, if you know, but we've been doing like uh, a lot of virtual things and we started this podcast uh, early on this year. And uh, we have a segment in our podcast where we call and make surprise sort of call, phone calls. And uh, this is yeah. a surprise phone call. Are you open to uh, sharing a couple minutes of uh, faith together with me? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Our theme today, you know, we're touching base on some of the, the important teachers of Humanae Vitae and, you know, St. John Paul's Theology of the Body. So I'll tell you what, I'll start with a softball first, okay? Okay. Now, you um, you took on another job, right, or a new job. You're the, the executive director. Maybe you could just tell me a little bit about your job and your role there. Yeah, sure. So one of my best friends lives here in Northern Virginia. He's a godfather of one of my kids, and, and we're godfather of his third child. So um, we've always been in touch, and I've been in Northern Virginia three to four times a year over the last five, four or five years because of work, and really fell in love with the area. So when this job opened, uh, it's a pregnancy center, relatively new, just like two and a half years old in Northern Virginia. Um, I, I put my, my hat in the ring and uh, lo and behold they chose me so um <laughs> that's awesome it's, it's just yeah yeah and I've, I've been working in the pro-life field for dozens of years and i've been on the board of a pregnancy center in orlando jmj pregnancy center catholic center mm -hmm. for the last three years so i uh, now now i'm i'm uh, on the front lines in the in the fight for life to unborn life and and young mothers it's really been edifying but yet challenging and i find that when when you're on a spiritual journey and you're allowing god to move you he's, he's gonna 
put a, a fork in the road that you don't expect, and this certainly was one for me. But uh, I'm grateful to God that he uh, he saw fit to bring me here and to do this work. What's the name of the organization? Warrington Pregnancy Center in Warrington, Virginia. Wow, that's great. So, uh, okay, here's my fastball. You ready? Yeah. So you've got teenagers, and clearly there's a lot of competing messages about sexuality and the culture, and they're exposed to that, right? So how do you share with your kids about God's plan for sex and love? Yeah, well, when it comes to sexuality, the, the best method as a parent is just to live it. Live live your, your, your married life in a beautiful, uh, holy way. Uh, be a family of prayer. Um, my, uh, my parents had nine children, and none of us ever had a doubt that my father was madly in love with my mother and vice versa for the almost 51 years they were married before my father died. And I, I try to model that for my kids. That, and, and that's healthy and that's good. And if they see that and they experience that every day, then that's the best school for living our sexuality in a healthy way. Um, now we live in a, in a very sex-crazed, sex-obsessed world, and uh, the questions come up. And particularly for my teenage children, I just now have three teenage children, confronting those questions in a direct way without any kind of gray area, I think is, is healthy and good, especially when they're witnessing every day a healthy uh, Catholic marriage in the home. Uh, then they can kind of put that in context that what mom and dad have is good, it's healthy, it's right. What what the culture is proposing to us is unhealthy mm. and, and it needs healing. Mm. And how we can heal it is by understanding it, understanding that, that, that this is a culture gone astray and that we need to be loving, we need to be out there and just living our faith well, understanding our faith well. And as St. Peter said, Always be ready to give an explanation for our hope, for our faith. Be able to give an answer to uh, a culture that says, well, just feel free to express yourself sexually whatever way you, you desire. And, and be ready to say that that's, that's going to make you unhappy. It's going to make you sick, it, it, in, that if not in your body, then at least in your soul. And it's going to separate you from God, which is the last thing you want to do. Mm. So that that's kind of how I go with that. That's beautiful. That's great. I mean, uh, essentially, it's live by example, right? And, and that's the way you're really uh, you know, forming your kids. That's really the best way, right? That's great. Well, this has been awesome, uh, Patrick. It's so great to catch up with you. And, and I'm so happy you're doing well. And, and uh, you're amidst uh, all new stuff. That's great. Yeah. You know, it's a, yeah. every day is like a new beginning, I bet for you, right? Uh, yeah. And on top of that, my new book just got released. So oh, good for our you. Sunday visitor published my book. I think the last time I saw you, I was, t I was starting to write my book at that point. I think I already started a few chapters. What is the name of the book? 100 Ways John Paul II Changed the World. Beautiful. All right, Patrick, let's touch base soon, okay? Let's stay in touch. Okay. Thanks, thanks Mario. Peace, my brother. All right, bye-bye. Today, our guest is Dr. Janet Smith. She holds the Father Michael McGivney Chair of Life Ethics at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. She is an author, an editor, and a contributor to various works on life issues, bioethics, humane vitae, same-sex attraction, and Catholic moral theology. 
more than 2 million copies of her talk, Contraception, Why Not?, have been distributed worldwide. She has appeared on The Geraldo Show, Fox Morning News, CNN International, and CNN Newsroom. Let's welcome Dr. Janet Smith. So, you know, we're going to get into your background and uh, who you are in just a moment. But I always like to find out how people were raised Catholic, their family, their formative years. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your family life when you were a kid. How did you start with your, you know, your love for Christ? Well, both of my parents were first-generation immigrants. My dad from a family that came from Portugal and my mother from a family that came from Slovenia, part of Yugoslavia. But my parents were very responsible people, so they lived by the church's teachings. And so I I really loved going to catechism. I thought that the explanations of the church for what it taught were just fascinating. And then I went off to college, and I left my faith behind for a while and went to a fairly radical school, very radical now. In fact, we're very radical then, Grinnell College in Iowa. And I actually wanted to be a radical, and radicals really appalled me, as it turned out. I, I found them to be unwashed and um, unthinking, um, <laughs> largely irresponsible. Mm-hmm. I went running back to church. Was there a, a moment or a pivotal moment in your life where um, you felt God in a very unique way? Was there something that happened, happened in your life that transformed you to fall in love with Christ? You know, that's an excellent question. And really, it happened for me very late in life. Hmm. Um, I was always driven by my intellect. Uh, It wasn't until probably sometime in the last 15 years. I was teaching at a seminary, and I was uh, encouraged by one of my uh, colleagues to go to retreat for the Institute of Priestly Formation in Omaha, Nebraska. And I had the most extraordinary spiritual director during that time who really, as you said, made it move from the head to the heart. Wow. It was it was painful, honestly. It was quite painful, um, not realizing that I didn't have a really low relationship um, wow. with Jesus. It was it was an intellectual commitment, um, very strong wow. <laughs> intellectual commitment. You know, I, I thought I would die for the church and die for Jesus, but I just had a powerful experience of Jesus's love. And then a couple of years later, I became a consecrated virgin. Wow. And my life has been radically different since, as far as just peace, yeah. amazing peace. It's just been wonderful, just really wonderful. Yeah, that that's great. What a grace God gave you, because you've been you, you've been faithful to Him your whole life. You've been following the teachings of the church, but He He knew that He had to pierce your heart in a way that really transformed you as a person. What a beautiful story, actually. So I have a couple questions for sure. you. So you recently retired, I read, uh, from your work at the Sacred Heart Seminary in Detroit. So tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about your work at the seminary, uh, what you taught there, what roles you had for the seminary. I was teaching at the University of Dallas, which I totally loved. I still think it's one of the best universities on the face of the earth. And then I got a, an invitation from Archbishop Vigneron, who was the rector at the seminary at the time, to come teach. I taught moral theology mostly. I actually thought I was going to the seminary to teach philosophy. But when I got there, I, <laughs> they gave me moral theology courses. The colleagues were fantastic, and there were many good students, both among the seminarians <clears throat> and the lay people that took courses. And uh, you realize you're doing something really special, which is you know, forming priests, and yeah. that's more important. 
Um, Beautiful. And it did great things for my spiritual life. Yeah. So you became well-known in the Catholic world for your defense of the Church's sexual teachings, especially of St. Paul VI, Humane Vitae. Uh, your books, Why Humane Vitae Was Right and Why Humane Vitae Is Still Right, are very popular. And your, uh, your talk on contraception, Why Not, actually went viral before there was even such a thing about being viral. So why is Humane Vitae right? And maybe you could uh, explain to our listeners, what is Humane Vitae? Well, first of all, I mean, it takes a long time to do that. But um, right. Humane Vitae is the encyclical that Pope Paul VI wrote, defending what had been the teaching of all Christian churches up until 1930, that contraception is not in accord with God's plan for marital love, which is meant to be an act of complete self-giving. And God wants souls, right? He wants souls. He made the whole universe uh, to share with human beings. And he wanted human beings to be brought into existence through an act of love. God is love. And God created new life because of love, because he wanted to share the glories of his existence, of his being with others. And he he devised this incredibly complicated and brilliant uh, and difficult plan to bring forth new human souls through the love of a man and a woman, the sexual love uh, between a man and a woman, the physical giving of spouses to each other. Um, which in itself is a pledge of lifetime commitment to another. The sexual act is meant to be a pledge of lifetime commitment to another person. And it's a lifetime commitment, very much uh, concretely so, because a new human life might result from that act. And new human beings need parents who love them for the whole of their existence in the unconditional, intense way that God loves us. And so to be saying to another person when you're having sexual intercourse with them that I give myself completely to you in this completely means I'm going to give my whole life to you. And I'm making that pledge by keeping this act open to the possibility of a child, which is the physical instantiation of that pledge says, you have that baby, it's now, we now are committed to each other, to remain with each other for the rest of our lives, because we love each other, because we made a commitment, um, but because this child needs us. So that's a shorthand explanation. Of the that was good. Thing. That was good. Yeah, and, you know, I, I read Humanae Vitae myself maybe six or seven years ago, and I, I, I found it to be, it's not that long. Some people get intimidated. They think it's a really long uh, piece of work, but it's not, and it, it's written very articulately clear, and it's not uh, difficult to read and understand. So um, I encourage the listeners, um, you know, to check that out, and it's very easily found on even the um, Vatican website. Um, oh so, no! But use no, no, no. Use my translation. All right, it's <laughs> oh. the ones on the Vatican website is okay, but mine's better, honestly. Right on. Um, in all due humility, which I have a hard time with, but it's um, <laughs> if you type in my name, Janet Smith, new translation, Humanae Vitae, you will find a copy of it. And uh, so I recommend it. There's a few uh, key points that I think my translation. Uh, catches better than the Vatican one. The initial translations were all done from the Italian. Right. I translated it from the Latin text. Wow. Right. Wonderful. And it's better. I mean, okay. I'll give you just one quick instance. The first line, if you want to be taken, the English, which is based upon the Italian mm-hmm. for most translations, is a very serious duty, 
of transmitting human life that God has entrusted to spouses. The word duty in Latin, in Italian, you know some Italian, is dovere, which dovere. means duty. Right? Dovere, yep. Okay? Dovere. You have right? to do. And, word. Yep. Yeah, you ought to do something. You ought to do it's something. Duty, dovere. Something you, or dovere. The Latin word is munus, M-U-N-U-S, which is a very exalted word, which has about a dozen meanings that it's hard to capture in one word in English. But the word gift, in fact, it appears in the liturgy, in the Latin liturgy, when the Eucharist is confected and the wine is made into the body and blood of Christ. The body and blood of Christ are, are munera, are gifts that the angels carry up to God the Father, right? They're mm. gifts. It's the munus of transmitting human life. It's the gift of transmitting human life. Right. It's it, another word that can be used is mission. This is a gift that God has given spouses, and it's a gravissimo munus. Um, it's a very important grandissimo. Munus. It's the important. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Good. You know. You know what I say to that? Va bene. Va bene. There you go. Va bene. <laughs> right. Um, so. Maybe you could share with our listeners then, you kind of said it, but maybe you can go a little deeper. So then why is contraception wrong? Well, again, bottom line, it's not in accord with God's plan for sexuality. Mm-hmm. All right? The act of sexual intercourse is meant to be an act of complete self-giving, and those who are withholding their fertility are not giving precisely what belongs in this act and defines this right. act. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of these two different phrases. I want to have sex with you, or... I'm I'm uh, I'm willing to be a parent with you. Mm-hmm. Think of the difference. Yeah. I mean, I want I want to have sex with you, which is what contraceptive sex says. I, John Paul II talked about the meaning of the sexual act, of the language mm-hmm. of the body. I'm willing to be a parent with you. Says it's not just your body I want. I want to be completely involved in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I want to share the fullness of my life with you. I want to engage in the most phenomenal act of bringing forth a new human being with you. I want my whole life inextricably and forever bound up with yours. Again, I'm yours and I'm yours forever and I want you to be mine and mine forever. Whereas conscious sex is a momentary act. Even if you want to say all those things, even if you, in your heart, you mean all those things, He's saying your body can't mean it. It's like you know, kissing someone on the mouth or on the cheek means one thing. Punching them means another. You just can't convey with a punch the same thing you can convey with a kiss. Mm-hmm. It's to express love and a love that's open to new life. Yeah. Yeah. A committed love. It's written into the very nature of the act. Right. And if you it's not something you made up, it's not something you sat in your 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 study and said, oh, gee, what sort of meaning or nature could I assign to the act of sexual intercourse? Mm-hmm. And clearly sex is meant to be pleasurable. It mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. profoundly pleasurable. And that's, mm-hmm. But you sort of want to ask, like, why? Why do you have to make it so pleasurable? <laughs> because it confuses people. It confuses people. I think God would say, but I want them to engage in it often. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why. But I want them to be married um, so that they can use this act the way it's meant to be act, that you feel, you do feel closer to a person with whom you've had sex. When it's outside of marriage, that can be a very uncomfortable feeling. Mm-hmm. You don't really want that. It's like, why am I feeling close to this person? All I wanted was pleasure. Mm-hmm. Or you might feel alienated because you say, it, it, there's something false about this. There's something I've kind of lied. John Paul II talks about contraceptive sex being a lie with your body. It's like, the body itself is saying I'm committed to you, but I'm not committed to you. So there's, there's, something, there's some sort of disjuncture here. 
And yeah. so that, that what Don Paul II is saying is the act itself, not that we didn't assign it this. We didn't say, oh, I can assign eating this purpose, and I can assign exercise this purpose, and I can assign um, sex this purpose. No, God did. God already assigned meanings to things. And we have to live in accord with those meanings. I'm glad you brought up St. John Paul. In our topic today is actually about TOB 123, and in uh-huh. it we have focused on uh, how St. John Paul's theology of the body uh, essentially is the grand defense of humani vitae. Maybe you can address that a little bit. I mean, he wrote Theology of the Body as a defense of humani vitae because uh, Vatican II had said that um, the moral theologians of this world should show the scriptural basis for the church's teaching on moral issues. He said it's there. Now, obviously, scripture does not say thou shalt not contracept. So what does it say that can make clear to us God's plan for sexuality? So it goes back to Genesis. If you ever learn of God's plan for sexuality, you have to go back to Genesis when he made male and female. And he said our very bodies show us that we're meant to be in loving relationships. We're meant to be in relationships of complete self-giving to the other. That's what the sexual organs actually show. We are oriented to the other, mm-hmm. the other, of the other sex. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> I mean, there's I think through the two first commandments. One's not expressed so much as a commandment. God said, "It's not good for man to be alone. Get married." And then what did He say? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So sex was meant to do two things. One, it was meant to make you other-oriented, wanting to be in a lifetime love-committed relationship with another, or you might say others, in the sense of the priests and nuns and consecrated, their lives are directed towards the others, and then they're meant to be fruitful. For spouses, they're meant to be physically fruitful, not, and they're meant to be spiritually fruitful, too. I mean, I... You know, some of my friends have such beautiful, glorious marriages, and then none of them has it been sort of like just a smooth road. But it's like, you know, we there's a lot of sorts of obstacles to marriage lasting. Most everybody has woken up at some point and said, I wish I could get out of this, mm-hmm. right? But they don't. They reconfirm themselves to, there's no, if something's, if it's not going well, I have to pour myself into it to make sure it does go well. Mm-hmm. And you, you find people have done that for 20, 25, 30, 50 years, and you're sitting and people say, whoa, you got some wisdom here. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I just soak that up? Can I yeah. soak up the love between the two of you, the commitment? Because that's what we all want, and we want to see yep. it possible. Yeah. We want to see it possible. Well, listen, uh, Janet, thank you so much for uh, sharing yes. this time with us. It was very informative. Uh, I thank you so much, and uh, you know, continue the good work. Well, thank you. You're, I hope this podcast enterprise really succeeds well. I'll keep it in my purse. You're a very good interviewer. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Like you had said, let's pray for one another. Let's pray for the church. Amen. Shall do. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you, Mario. So this has been a lot of fun, and we thank you so much for hanging out with us. So stay in touch throughout the week on social media, where we keep you engaged through music, videos, and daily reflections. This podcast has only been made possible by donors and supporters of Array of Hope. You can become part of the Array of Hope family by going on our donation page on our website at arrayofhope.net. So next time, our guest will be Sherry Waddell. We're going to talk about how we are all called and gifted. She is certainly a leader in our church, and you don't want to miss our interview with her. I want to thank my co-producer, David Heideck, and our engineer, Jack Garno, for putting all this together. So thanks for joining us today, and there's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next time, peace. Cause hope is-